0: Right now on Matter of Fact, it's the only hospital in a hundred miles. These people need us. They really, they really do need us. We take you inside this rural hospital's battle to serve and survive. Then, the head of an historically black medical school volunteers to get a test vaccine. Why?
1: There's still a great deal of apprehension in minority communities about vaccines and medical research generally
0: one doctor's quest to help the most
1: vulnerable overcome the fear of
0: vaccines and millions of Americans without jobs benefits and food in line for help it's a humbling experience get inspired by how this man turned a handout into a reason to lend a hand Plus, it's not just graffiti
2: anymore. The spray paint, the markers, the stickers, has now become the tool of the American protester.
0: Meet the street artists of the social justice movement.
3: i Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. As COVID-19 batters the nation, the pandemic is exposing a national healthcare crisis. Rural hospitals overwhelmed and nearing capacity, fighting to keep their doors open. Before the pandemic, nearly half of all rural hospitals in the U.S. were operating at a loss. 17 have been forced to close this year and more than 400 others face the same fate. Texas has seen more closures than any other state in recent years. Our correspondent Jessica Gomez traveled to Titus County in the northeast part of the state and spent the day at a rural hospital struggling to stay afloat.
4: Northeast Texas, far from the hustle and bustle of big city life. But now the usual peace and quiet here. shattered by a pandemic. As you know, we
2: had another surge in COVID.
4: This is the morning huddle at Titus Regional Medical
5: Center.
2: We have currently seven RNs out with COVID. We all know that that
5: stretches us thin. So they called the covid 19 and it just alerts everyone that they're moving a COVID patient.
4: Upstairs in the ICU, 28-year-old nurse, Megan Barrett, preparing for yet another COVID patient
5: they're worried, they're scared, so I just always try to make them feel at ease. The only ICU
4: within an hour's drive is busy, now experiencing its third surge in COVID cases.
5: She's running like fever, she's short of breath. She...
4: CEO Terry Scoggin trying to keep his hospital afloat. One of my biggest concerns and fears is under my helm or under my leadership, we will not make it. The hospital, which serves five rural counties, was already struggling financially when COVID hit. Just like that. More than half of the patients at Titus Regional are on Medicare or Medicaid, and nearly a third of the population here is uninsured. What it means is, from a rural perspective, it's hard to survive. As an independent hospital, there's no money coming in. There's not too many people on Wall Street or the East Coast who are investing in rural hospitals. 10% 10% of the staff here furloughed or let go early on, in anticipation of the millions that would be lost in canceled outpatient and elective procedures. Federal stimulus help, not enough to cover the losses. So what do you need from us? Terry Scoggin blames himself. I regret that we had to make the decision. I regret, more importantly, that I did not have us in a financial position where we could have weathered the storm. A storm with no end in sight. As cases rise once again, they're doing more here with less. I'm going to go up and then straight back. Short on the testing they need, equipment, medication and staff. Other Texas hospitals that helped early on are now maxed out themselves.
2: The staff are stretched and they're very tired and they're working a lot of overtime. We
5: built an intubation cover
4: respiratory therapist Lindsay Hutchings devising this homemade tent using a shower curtain to protect doctors when intubating patients. It works well, but she is exhausted.
2: The last few months have been mentally, physically, emotionally draining.
4: Draining and many here getting sick. More than 100 hospital employees like radiology tech Michael Sines have been infected.
5: We ended up opening the vessel.
4: The 35-year-old new dad now back at work after being on a ventilator for a week and a half.
5: Just hoping I would get out of it and go back home. Because, yeah, uh, I mean, I just had a two-month-old and, yeah, I needed to get back
1: to him.
2: Code 19, all clear.
4: Fighting here for survival, not only for their patients, but for a community depending on them as the number three, number four employer in the community and the type of jobs that we're able to provide, the economy would take a dramatic hit. We're gonna make it because uh, it's, it's, we're gonna make it because we have to. She looks good to me. Megan right. Barrett making it through yet another shift. Last week, she clocked 67 hours, her toughest yet.
5: They're dying alone, you know, and it's it's hard. And you try to be in there with them and they may not know you're in there, but just try to be in there and hold their hand. These people need us. They really, they really do need us. I'm trying not to cry, <laughs> so it, it's been hard.
4: In Titus County, Texas, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez.
0: Next on Matter of Fact, a vaccine expert answers our questions.
3: What are your worries about this vaccine becoming to some degree a political football?
0: Why he says the battle over masks could become a war over vaccines. And later, Congress put a hold on 30 million student loans because of COVID-19. We'll tell you when those payments are coming due.
3: For joining us for Matter of Fact. A dose of good news this week about possible vaccines for COVID-19. Moderna joined Pfizer in announcing strong early results from testing. Both vaccines show over 90 percent effectiveness and both are on track to seek emergency use authorization from the FDA. With trials moving forward at an unprecedented pace, There are questions about the diversity of test subjects in the vaccine trials. Federal data show infection rates for black and brown people are two to three times higher than their white peers. Dr. James Hildreth is one of the nation's leading immunologists. He heads the Meharry Medical College in Nashville, the nation's largest private, independent, historically black academic health services center. Dr. James Hildreth, it's so nice to have you back. Thank you for being with me. When we spoke last, you had said that you were going to be a candidate for the vaccine, and also part of that was to help recruit more people of color to this. Uh, Has that worked? Has that been um, the response, do you think? Has it made a difference?
1: So, to that, I think it has made a difference, but to be quite honest, there's still a great deal of apprehension in minority communities about vaccines and medical research generally. That's why I thought it was very important for me to be a participant in the trial, so I could advocate for something that I'm doing myself. And the approach is to provide enough information to people that they can make their own decision about whether or not this is something they should do. FISA reports that 42 percent of their participants were from diverse backgrounds. And here in the United States, 10 percent of the participants were African-American. It's not the best, but it's certainly a decent representation of minorities in their studies. So I think that getting academic health centers involved and community organizations has made a big difference.
3: The trial that you're involved with is the Novavax trial, and it's now been fast-tracked. Can you explain what that means exactly?
1: What that means is that the FDA has set some criteria that if these are met, this vaccine can get expedited review for approval, and it will get an EUA, not, not an actual approval, but an e, emergency use authorization. And that's what we're, that is what 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 is happening here. Now, s- some people who are part of the vaccine approval process would like us to just do the full approval as opposed to EUA because the standards are a little bit more rigorous. But given the urgency of, of where we are, I think the EUA route is appropriate. Uh, but people need to understand that doesn't mean that there'll be compromises in safety. It will not mean that. It just means that some of the steps that are needed for approval will be expedited.
3: How does it work between the drug companies? How would you describe that relationship as you're all trying to actually create a vaccine that works?
1: Well, what has happened is an unprecedented level of collaboration between the drug companies and NIH. So there is competition in the sense that all of them are trying to get their vaccines approved, but the level of cooperation between the the drug companies, NIH, and some of the private contract research organizations has been unprecedented.
3: What are your worries about this vaccine becoming, to some degree, a political football? Or do you think that when it actually gets to spring, summer, twenty twenty one, we might be through some of the more contentious political parts of this debate?
1: So that my my fervent hope is that the vaccines will not become politicized, because. You know, this is a public health issue. It's not a political issue. And the truth is that uh, the need for the vaccine could not be overstated to get back to a sense of normalcy around the globe. I mean, the people around the world need to get the vaccine. And I think that we need to start planning for that and making provisions for that. So I hope that it won't become politicized. But watching what has happened with masks and some other things, I do worry about that. But uh, I pray and hope that it will not be the case.
3: Dr. James Hildreth, it's so nice to talk to you, sir. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you for having me again, dad.
0: Coming up on Matter of Fact, millions of Americans don't know where they'll get their next meal. Twice a month, I walk a mile to the food pantry to pick up groceries. Will the season of giving last long enough to feed the need? And later...
2: It's a very, very thin line between a street artist and a social justice protester in Mm -hmm. the United States.
0: How the streets have become the gallery of the protest movement. Welcome back to Matter
3: of Fact. As Thanksgiving approaches, millions of Americans are having difficulty putting food on the table. When the pandemic hit, 22 million people lost their jobs. Nearly half of those jobs haven't come back. The result, an immediate need for food and assistance. Demand at the nation's food banks is hitting record levels and recently cars lined up for a drive-through pantry in Dallas. Volunteers there distributed 600,000 pounds of food, around 40% of the increase coming from people who've never been to a food bank before.
6: My name is Reptavia and I live in the city of Milwaukee. Twice a month I walk a mile to the food pantry to pick up groceries. So I work in the hospitality industry and when COVID-19 hit, they had to close down the hotel and we were all laid off. Part of my job, I received tips and all that extra money was lost. So the food pantry really helps um, fill in that gap. My first time to go as a shopper was a a time of um, true humiliation because I've uh, always worked hard and provided for myself. And to not be able to do that and to actually need like a food handout, it's a humbling experience. Oh, thank you. You're I started to think, you know, I should really give back. I shouldn't just take from the pantry. And I approached the director of the food pantry and asked if there was an opportunity to volunteer. What I've learned from helping at the food pantry is that there's an ongoing need to feed people in our city. That after COVID uh, ends and we go back to normal, there'll still be people who don't have a means to, to make money to feed their family. And that we should continue to support our food pantries, volunteer, donate food. That's really a fulfilling experience when you see the people in need uh, get the food that they, they need to feed their families.
3: Trinity Tran is the executive director of Urban Partners Los Angeles and runs one of the largest food banks in the country. What do people not understand about food insecurity um, that you and all your team members really um, see day in and day out?
4: Well, you know, why are people growing hungry? The, The simple answer is because they are poor. They are too poor to buy food. And a food bank is ultimately a symbol of this extreme poverty. And what we're doing with each box of groceries that we're distributing is that we are filling the void that's been left behind in this broken system. And, and there's no quick policy fix, but, ultimately, it's going to take you know a considerable amount of, of social and economic justice, so that we can stabilize people's livelihoods, so that they don't have to stand in line for hours for a box of food, and that is a tragedy because it's a fundamental human right, um, you know, just as it's a, a basic humanitarian responsibility for all of us to be able to care for others and, and ensure that no one suffers from hunger. Watch the rest
3: of our interview on food insecurity at matteroffact.tv.
0: Next on Matter of Fact, find out why you and 30 million others have a payment to make.
3: This is a heads up if you have a federal student loan.
0: And still ahead, street art got its start a long time ago. As long as
5: man has been around, I mean from the cave paintings.
0: What you can learn from the markings on a wall.
3: Now to a segment we like to call we're paying attention even if you're too busy. This is a heads up if you have a federal student loan. When Congress passed the CARES Act back in April, they put a temporary hold on payments, interest, and collection of student loans. After one extension this past fall, the CARES Act is set to expire on December 31st. To be prepared, experts have some advice. If you're unemployed or underemployed, look into an income-driven repayment plan. There's a process for this called recertification, which could allow you to request reduced payments based on your projected 2021 income. Just so you know, the people who service your loan are required to send you a notice before the payments restart. You'll likely see that letter sometime early in the new year, unless the federal government takes action soon.
0: Next on Matter of Fact, we visit the street galleries that prove there is art in protest. And finally, a look at
3: the intersection of art and politics. Street art, it's a form of artistic expression born of protest that reflects history in the making. In the District of Columbia, sidewalks and storefronts have become the gallery of the social justice movement. Helping preserve it, two street artists and activists, Andy Shalal and Corey Stowers, explain its power in their own words.
2: Graffiti has always been used as a communication device. The spray paint, the markers, the stickers, the wheat paste, you name it, um, has now become the tool of the American protester. My name is Corey Stowers. I've been writing graffiti for 25 years. It's a very, very, in line between a street artist and a social justice protester.
5: Street art is nothing new. It's been around for a long, long time. It's a way to send messages to one another. Hi, my name is Andy Shalal. I'm the CEO and founder of Bus Boys and Poets, a local community space. Did anybody go to Black Lives Matter Plaza last night? Behind me is the Peace and Justice Wall, which represents much of the civil rights struggles that have taken place here. I think that street art. In
2: Washington, D.C., it's always been very important because of our proximity to, you know, national power. We and obviously, we, we get people overcome. coming in from all over the country to protest on any number and range of issues.
5: We had an incident that happened where one of our storefronts were broken, and we decided to fix it by putting a piece of plywood temporarily until the glass arrived. So when we put up the plywood, it looked like a canvas, and I'm an artist, so I decided to paint something on it, and I decided that I'm gonna call a few friends that have storefronts and ask them if it's okay for us to paint their storefronts. And we send out artists, we paid them to go do the work. The artists were more than happy to do this because they've been isolated and they wanna be out there. I've seen a lot of
2: uh, what you call virtue signaling. Um, you know, Here in Washington, DC, businesses boarding up and then asking for artists, uh, particularly artists of color to come and paint messages of solidarity on their, on their storefronts. With that being said, I've seen so many new artists uh, come out during this pandemic and during the summer of awakening. Graffiti art had to mature. Um, And so we're seeing, you know, that graffiti going into the galleries in the 1980s has now spilled back out onto the streets and the streets are now the gallery.
5: It used to be illegal to paint anything on anything really that's public and suddenly Our mayor commissions somebody to paint Black Lives Matter on a street that otherwise would have gotten arrested.
2: There are many other cities that picked up on that act and and brought it into their own cities.
5: My hope is that with this new administration, street art will continue to thrive because we are all in need of healing and artists are gonna be the ones that are gonna take us there.
3: That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week.
0: Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.